When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're talking real money. For many years, for many, many years, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. No, many, many, for many years, we have argued, we actually argued on the air, on our shows, with the legendary Jack Bogle of Vanguard. May he rest in peace. Our argument with him, well, we actually had a couple. Uh, but the big argument we had with him is an argument that came up in yesterday's podcast. And that is, why in the world would anyone need to own international stocks in their portfolio? As a matter of fact, the question was posed to us yesterday based on an article in a physician's magazine uh, with a quote from somebody at Morningstar who was saying that the international markets don't work. Well... It's funny, the exact same day that I put that podcast up, Christine Benz of Morningstar published an article about investing internationally. Hi, everybody. I'm Don. Over there is Tom. This is Talking Real Money, the podcast, and this is where we do something very important. We talk about money, but only the real stuff, not the fake stuff. And the real fact here, Tom, is our international, as her article said, are international stocks worth the bother? Well, since you raised his name, Jack Bogle, according to Christine Benz, and we know this, argued that international stocks didn't merit inclusion in investors' portfolios. We, as you said, heard it right out of his mouth. We also used to argue with him about tilting portfolios to small and to value. Yeah. I want to get into all that. Little nits. Uh, yeah. He argued that U.S. companies, especially U.S. large caps, uh, put an underline there because you're going to want to think about that later, derive plenty of their revenue from selling goods and services overseas. That is entirely true, by the way. Mm-hmm. Microsoft has a huge, I think it's like 40% of their revenues come from overseas. Apple's Apple, too. big, big money. So he said if non-U.S. Uh, non-U.S. economies thrive, investors in U.S. companies should as well. In other words, if they're doing well in India, you're going to get that because Microsoft and Amazon, et cetera, are making money. So his take was you then for do not need to invest in international stocks. Now, the numbers, the problem is the numbers don't bear that out over the long haul. And in yesterday's podcast, you can go back and listen, we gave a review of performance of international markets, a global approach versus the U.S. But I think more importantly, it's it, it might be important to consider real life lessons because Yes, while the U.S. market has done better, frankly, than the rest of the world since the Great Recession of 2008 and nine, you correctly point out, Don, on a regular basis that in the early 2000s, it was it painful. Was it was it was awful to just be in the United States yeah. because the S&P 500 actually 
lost money in that period of time, but the global markets actually made money. Okay. That's people might say, yeah, okay. I, eh, that's to me, that's like giving a number of people that died in world war two, unless you actually know somebody that doesn't mean anything. Let me give you a story where you, it might have some meaning because oh, recently, a parable, a parable, ladies and that. gentlemen, coming up. <laughs> A parable from Tom. <laughs> and this comes directly from someone who was there, boots on the ground, since I mentioned the soldiers. Um, he was there in Japan in the late 1980s and early 1990s. He worked for a large bank and he was there working on deals that were going on in Japan. And he saw the amount of money, the amount of deals and for those of you old enough to remember it, it was all about Japan in that period of time. It was. Oh, wait, a, wait, may I interject? What? Please. My, my wife back then actually put a ton of her money, because she was a stockbroker, in the Japan fund. That was, I do remember that fund. That was, uh, is that Fidelity? Oh, gosh. I can't remember. You can look I, it up. But I can't remember who read it, but Japan I think was she even has a little bit of it today. Still less. <laughs> painful lesson. I don't know. And we'll give you the number here in a minute, which will shock you. But it was all about their management style. They're buying up real estate. They bought fancy golf courses here in the U.S. They bought other real estate. It really was. I think they even came to the large manufacturing in our, our, our town and told them how to build better airplanes called Boeing. But it was all about Japan in that period of time. And the story about the person there tells it the property values skyrocketed. Homes there uh, then cost about as much as they do today. In other words, there's been no appreciation at all. Big money was racing after all kinds of deals. And what happened was at the, at the result of that explosion, there were a lot of bad loans that were hidden. There was a lot of things that in the dark that you didn't know about. So, but what, what was the result of that? Well, the Nikkei 225 in, this is still shocking to me, September of 1989, which I think is 34 years ago, basically traded at 38,915, right? 38,915 yeah. today, as of this recording, 31,641. So, Let's just for sake of argument say it's down still 20%, 20% in 34 years. And here's the part that you should pay attention to if you just have all your money in the United States. Because in Japan, I looked up the number, it's about 82% of the investable assets in Japan are, guess what, invested in Japan. So that means all those people that believed in the Japanese market, the Jap Japan fund, <laughs> have kept all that money there and have lost money for 34 years actually i need to i need to argue that point a little bit because it's the same point that is that was made by people about the great depression if you invested in 1929 and you just stuck Static. around it took yeah. until 1955 for you to break even you, the the nikkei distributes about two percent on average in dividends so you're getting so that when money. you factor in yeah. those dividends you haven't lost money but you haven't made any money. You haven't either. made any money. The point is, again, to be globally diversified in that period of time, you had a very healthy return, as we have uh, pointed out many, many times. What? Twelve percent? Eleven? Twelve for a globally? That's yeah, since nineteen seventy. That's nineteen seventy okay. through the. I don't know nineteen eighty nine or nineteen. Well, I'll find out while you talk. Yeah. So, but here's the thing: I think is more important. And by the way, there's all kinds of reasons why, right? Currencies. 
economies. There's not, not been a lot of growth there. And by the way, currency, the U.S. dollar went had its struggles in the early 2000s. That's why the U.S. market went down compared to others, et cetera. But here's something else I really think you should pay attention to. And this we will give full credit to Christine Benz for. If you just invest in the U.S. market, 24% of your money in the Morningstar U.S. market index, in her words, lands in the technology sector. So one out of every four of your dollars is in things like you're very familiar with Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Meta, NVIDIA. It's piled into all the stocks that have done what? Well, done well. Yeah. Done well. They've gone up a lot. Gone up. But so you're buying things that have been hot. Whereas, according to Christine Benz, just 11% of the Morningstar Global Markets XUS index does. In other words, to be globally diversified, now it's only one out of $10 is invested that way instead of uh, one out of every four. So this is worthy of consideration. I have never changed my opinion. And by the way, we used to issue the same opinion in the late 1990s, and we got a lot of pushback when we told people to invest internationally then. We still get a lot of pushback. <laughs> but we got from more then because yeah. I can remember people well, walking but, out of a class before. Saying, there ah. are a couple of things, though. Uh, one, the Jack Bogle attitude of the past that you only need the U.S. is, is in large part due to two things primarily. One, the post World War II global dominance of the U.S. economy. That that mindset stuck, and it stuck for a long, long, long time, decades. Two, in the, well, prior to the 2000s, individuals investing overseas had a, had a harder time doing it. Uh, the 90s, it started to get easier because you could only invest in ADRs, American Depository Receipts, and it was really, really difficult to make trades overseas in real time, so a lot there wasn't a lot of that going on. There was some, but not a lot. So those those did work against the, the global portfolio creation. But after the 90s, you have no technological excuse and you have no historical excuse because I went back to January 1989. Yes. I found the numbers on a 100% equity uh, portfolio portfolio. diversified globally about 9% per year. Pretty good. And by the way, one more argument from Mr. Bogle. We're not trying to pick on somebody who can't answer us today uh, because we have high respect for his work as we as and we've discussed him many, many times on this program and others and hold him in very, very high regard. It turns out, according to the academics, that most of the return of those markets overseas comes from the economic activity in those markets. In other words, it doesn't come, as Mr. Bogle said, from Microsoft selling goods and services there. Conversely, it is things that are going on in Germany and England and woe is China today, right? I mean, and hopefully Japan again, all those places that have local economies that are producing their own goods and services and all that sort of thing. So it turns out that that's where the return comes from and being properly diversified between those economies and those currencies, because the currencies have a big impact on the overall returns as well. So this is, I I don't think it's a debatable topic. I think it's an interesting one. It comes up, as you said, fairly regularly. I think the numbers very clearly point out that having a globally diversified portfolio, frankly, has been the way to go and is the way to go. 
Well, and just to be fair, I want to be fair, over that 1989 to uh, 2023 period, the U.S. total, all of the U.S. stocks together earned just under 1% more than a global portfolio for that that wacky sort of 34-year period. But when you when you look at other periods like we did back to the 70s, the international portfolio made a little more. And it's not about which makes more or less. That's not we get caught up in in the returns part of the equation. The bigger part of it is the comfort that having both provides. And again, that perfect example was the 2000s when you would have been scared out of your wits just investing in the U.S. with a global portfolio, you kicked back and you said, oh, my investments are fine. You're not going to make more than the market by buying the market. I had this discussion with somebody the other day. Oh, it was with my son. He's like, well, I don't want to do just what the market does. I want to beat it. And I go, well, by trying to beat it, you're going to lose. I said, wouldn't it be better to just be the market? And he goes, well, what does that mean? I said, just own the, just take what the market gives you. And he goes, how much is that? And I told him and he goes, well, I'd rather make more. That's the attitude. <laughs> I said, you're, you're 30 oh. something, dude. You're going to learn that that doesn't work. Yeah. It, it has hopefully it's sooner. It it's hopefully yeah. it's sooner than later. Yeah. It's a great way to put uh, it because you do have to accept that at some level if you invest this way. No be doubt. the market. Be yeah. the market. Oh, it sounds like a that, they, don't they do that at like games? Come on. They be do. And this the is sir not a game. So, uh can I go to okay. a couple of quick it's questions here? Uh we have lots of time. Yes. Okay. You this may, comes certainly. from Pete in Jamesville, New York. Ooh. Pete writes, "Hi Tom and Don, I appreciate your thoughts on a life path question for my youngest of four kids." Okay, that's a pretty good question. Yeah. He says, uh, all of my four kids have a tremendous work work ethic. Well done, Pete. Very well done. Because I think if people that understand you got to work to be successful are way ahead of everybody else. That's my take. But he then writes, oldest child graduated debt-free from college in 2022, launched successfully into his career, already has managed to invest $11,000 into VT and VBR. I think that's great. Next two children will graduate from college debt-free in one to three years, respectfully. They have several thousand dollars already invested in VT and VBR. Terrific. Youngest, this is what that's about the youngest, will be a high school senior. Here's my big question. The youngest is trying to decide between college and a career. Uh The youngest has been offered a, a job in heavy construction after he graduates from high school next year. He's looking at first-year earnings well over $100,000, and it will only rise from there. Okay, I don't know I, how, I, I'm done. I know how I'm voting. I know how you're voting. I don't know how to advise him. The opportunity is fantastic, but it will mean sacrificing the traditional college experience. Wait a minute. I Okay. Uh, however, given how we save and invest in this family, it's empire, entirely possible he is a millionaire before he hits 30. What to do? Don McDonald. The college experience, Tom. What did you do most of the time during college? I don't want. I'm not supposed to talk about that on this show. Okay, college experience. Yeah. Okay. Isn't the whole point? And this is where I think we lose sight of reality. The whole point of sending kids to college was to make them more employable. 
was to give them some skills, life skills and business skills and job skills and whatever skills it might be. Knock the rough edges off. Yeah, a little bit of that. But it really is to get you out in the workforce making a better, instead of making minimum wage flipping burgers, you can make six figures. Well, this kid can skip to six figures without going to college. I think this is a no, absolutely no brainer. The world needs more skilled craftsmen, workers of all kinds. We need, there is a shortage of good construction workers, heavy equipment workers. There's a shortage of truckers who can make very good money. There is a shortage of electricians and plumbers. All of these professions can earn you at some point close to or above six figures a year. Why would you not work toward a trade instead of college unless your career path requires college, doctor, lawyer, veterinarian, uh, professor? Even many in the tech trades now are you're getting hired if you don't have a college degree either. Because all you have to have is the skill set. You have to be a trades person. Mm -hmm. You have to know how to code. You have to know, and you can learn how to code on the job or on your own. My only question here for Pete would be, when you say heavy construction, is this a job somebody can still do in 20 or 30 years, or is it too physically demanding so that you need to quit doing it at 45 or 50? And when you're talking heavy construction, you're almost talking, you're almost always talking about the operation of equipment. Okay. Which doesn't which is, require the physicality. Which of, is not physicality. Okay. That's a, that's no. the laborers really who are down there, you know, in the trenches. Right. Okay. Um, breaking their I backs. I think we're no. going to agree here. I don't, I, I agree with you when people say the traditional college experience is not the reason you should be paying for college. I, I, th- I know no. people do, but it should, as you say, you should come out of there with some improved skills that were going to help you be more uh, uh, hireable, I guess. Uh, uh, so and anyway, how much no, more we're, hireable we're, can this young man get in another four no, years? No, because I, I these love the days, fact, the by job, the way, yeah. that's the other thing. These days, a bachelor's degree is practically meaningless in getting you a better job. If you want the great jobs out there now, the six figure white collar jobs, you need in many cases, to have a master's degree or a bachelor's degree and many years of experience before you get to those numbers. Coming out of school with a bachelor's degree doesn't doesn't mean you're going to get a decent salary. As a matter of fact, in the white-collar industries and businesses today, it means you're, in some cases, barely going to be able to survive in, in, in cities like New York, Seattle, L.A., Pete, Pete, you have your answer. All right. Send the kid to work. Yeah, get him going. This is uh, from Scott. He writes, getting my 22-year-old started with a Roth IRA. 22-year-old son has about one to one and a half years to complete his Bachelor of Science in Business and Marketing. He started a job at a local hardware store making $12.50 an hour. And here's the best part, been able to save $13. $15,000. I was thinking of opening a Roth IRA with $1,500 and see if Schwab can automatically transfer 50 to $75 a month to let him observe. Yeah, they can. Um, yeah, okay. But, and then he says, is it okay to use AVGE, which the answer is yes, mm-hmm. although he asks. AVGE is a year old, and I don't know American Century too well. 
Well, this American part of the Century is a very, very old company. Yeah, been around. They used for to be 20th Century Funds, but they went eh, 21st Century. Years or need something. to change the name. Yeah, long time. Uh, and and the Avantis Group, you don't have to worry about them being young because their track record is the type of securities, the asset class in which they invest. Yeah, and the style is not new. The right. method is new. So that part I'm comfortable with. I am questioning a little bit about why not just put the whole, if you have the money, the whole 6,500 into the Roth IRA today rather than doing the slow sort of uh, dollar cost averaging into the portfolio. I would. I, I don't think that doesn't make any sense to me. Makes no sense. Okay. It's the whole attitude of, well, you know, maybe the market goes down and I can buy more cheaper. Yeah. You know, don't play the game. Well, and we know the market has an upward bias. Yeah. Um, so that would be one. And then the other part would be because now you still have the 6,500. If you're going to invest that, then you just open a taxable account and you can use the same fund right there because at that much money going in. I think AVGE is a very great alternative, can work well for you. So Scott, congratulations on getting that 22-year-old started with a Roth IRA. And bear in mind, because AVGE is an exchange-traded fund, that if you own it in a brokerage account, you really don't have any tax ramifications to speak of. It's not a high-dividend-paying fund. They have small dividends, and you're going to be taxed on those. But they are. It's there is little or no chance they will ever distribute a capital gain. The only time you'll have a taxable event is when you sell, which sounds an awful lot like an IRA, hmm. except at a lower tax rate. Yeah, hmm. much lo- should be much right. lower. But okay, I, I want to thank all of the folks that got a hold of me last week. I had some wonder this week, wonderful conversations this with week, uh, last week. Yeah, no, with uh, people in South Dakota, with people uh, in Tennessee guy on the East Coast, guy in California. Wonderful. So I'm ready and able to do it all again, I guess, if you're going to make me keep working for a living, Don. Really? Do you feel like it's work? It's kind of like doing this, you know? Does it feel like work when you're just having a conversation with someone which no, you enjoy? For me, no, having one-on-one conversations, that's work. <laughs> a strain. So, no, I'm all kidding so, no. aside, happy here's, to have more of them. You bet. Here's how you do it. Here's how to order. Call no. Um here's how to here's how to set up your free meeting with Tom Cock with no obligation and no cost and no high pressure sales pitch. All you need to do is go to talkingrealmoney.com and click on the meet an advisor button. That's all there is to it and you will be whisked through the miracle of modern science to a form that you will fill out and you will tell Tom what time on Saturday you would like to meet with him. Make it in the morning because we're doing a show in the afternoon. And you too can get Tom's free advice with no obligation, no high pressure sales pitch by going to talkingrealmoney.com. I don't actually No do professionals like that. That were a, harmed in making a, this commercial. That was a parody. I, okay, just checking. Uh, so I do parody commercials a lot, good. actually. Pretty yeah. good. Yeah, pretty, pretty good stuff. So take advantage yeah. of it. Love to chat with you. And if I can help, I will. So okay. about that? There you go. Yeah. There you go. There you go. See, I'm speaking like I have a I have a neighbor. His last name starts with a Z. And yeah. he named all of his children with Z names. So he named one like of them Zebert? Zarek. Like he Zarek? took Derek and he put a Z in front of it. Zarek. You don't hear every day. Okay. No. So yeah. that's why I'm talking for Z's. Z-Z-Z-Z. It's very yeah. Russian. All right. Goodbye. 
farewell, auf Wiedersehen, good night. Can I say it? So long? No, okay. So long. I'm done. That's Tom and we're talking real money. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for informational, educational, and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time. So please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future. So past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Appella Capital, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. That's a wrap.